Howdy folks, this is Miss Sinclair for Miss Sinclair's History. Sorry, I've been a little hit and miss about the regularity of me getting these videos and podcasts up. I appreciate your patience. Today, we are continuing on with AP US History. We're looking at period three. We talked about the taxation without representation complaints of the Sons of Liberty and the colonists. And today we are gonna talk about the philosophical foundations of the American Revolution. This is the same lecture that my students would get in class. I record these videos on YouTube or just the audio on Spotify or Apple Podcasts for students, teachers, or anyone who wants to learn a little bit more about US history. If you find this helpful, please consider leaving a review or a rating um, or recommend it to a friend. Okay, let's jump into it. So what is the social contract? Do you remember? This is a concept that perhaps you learned about in world history, or I believe we've talked about it before. But what is the social contract? Today, we're gonna to be talking about topic 3.4, the philosophical foundations of the American Revolution. This means our objective is you will be able to explain how and why colonial attitudes about the government and the individual changed in the years leading up to the American Revolution. So we're gonna go back in time a little bit. And we're gonna talk about something called the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is really important to understand for US history in particular, because it's gonna be hugely influential to our form of government for the US constitution. So the Enlightenment refers to this period of time where you have all of these philosophers and political scientists and authors really thinking about what it means to be human and what is humanity's role in relationship to nature. So it's a philosophical belief system in the 18th century, so 1700s, that claimed that one could reform society by discovering rational laws that governed social behavior that were just as scientific as the laws of physics. So prior to this, you had had something that was known as the scientific revolution. Historians refer to this when thinking about um, Copernicus and thinking about Isaac Newton's um, you know, law of gravity, um, thinking about just the understanding of the world that there are constants, an object in motion stays in motion, an object at rest stays at rest, that the earth is not the center of the universe, that planets and stars rotate and move on their own regardless of human action, right? The scientific revolution introduces this idea to Europeans more broadly, that the earth and the universe has laws that are constant and reliable to have nothing to do with humans. This idea is going to expand out to human society. It could be, can, you know, if, if the law, if the natural world is sort of organized and constant, surely humans have some of that as well. And that means we can change our systems, that we can improve society. You know, this 
Enlightenment philosophy really challenges the long-established religious and political institutions. It wonders if society and the government would be better if guided by reason instead of tradition or the church. And these new perspectives and intellectual optimism helps guide revolutionary movements. So you might think about the American Revolution or the French Revolution or even any of our Latin American revolutions. Okay, the guy to know though is John Locke. There are many Enlightenment philosophers. Um, you might think about um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, the Baron de Montesquieu, um, Voltaire, Derrida, Thomas Hobbes, um, but John Locke is the most important for U.S. history. So John Locke is going to write a book called, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of it. Um, all right, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of it. I don't have it easily accessible in my notes. John Locke is going to introduce this idea of um, governments only have the right to govern by the consent of the people. So let me tell you a little bit about John Locke before I jump into his political science ideas, because understanding his background will help understand his political philosophy. So Locke is coming out of England right after the English Civil War. So Thomas Hobbes was writing in the midst of the Civil War. And when you think about what is the natural state of man, Hobbes writes, man is evil, we are brutal, we are violent, and therefore we need a strong absolutist monarch to control humans because left on our own, we will just destroy each other, right? Hobbes is writing in a much more pessimistic time period. Hobbes, um, sorry, Locke is writing in a much more optimistic time period, right? He is the quintessential enlightenment philosopher. He's incredibly well-educated. He um, lived in political exile in Holland and there he became friend and tutor to William of Orange. William of Orange will go on to marry Princess Mary of England, William and Mary, and in 1688 with the glorious revolution, William will become the new king of England. So this really colors Locke's philosophy because when William and Mary come to power, they are forced to sign two laws. The first is the act of supremacy, which says that parliament is sovereign, right? Parliament is supreme over the monarch. So this really limits the power of the monarchy. And the second law is the declaration of the rights of Englishmen. English citizens have natural rights that can't be trod upon. So with these two laws in place, William becomes king and Locke becomes advisor to King William. So then what is the natural state of man? What does Locke view humanity at its base? Well, Locke would argue that man is good or at the very least hopes to be perceived that way, that man seeks a stable society, that we want to be part of a group and that we have natural rights and these natural rights are life, liberty, and property. And our natural rights can be 
limited only when we limit someone else's. So let me give you an example. Um, let's say I murder someone. Well, Locke would say, therefore, the government has the ability to take away your liberty, imprison you, or even maybe take away your life by executing me, right? I took away someone else's natural right to life. Therefore, the government has the right to take away some of my natural rights. The role of the government is to protect the natural rights of its citizens. So why do we have laws that limit how fast we drive? Well, to protect the life liberty and property of citizens, right? If people are driving however they want, they're speeding, they're cutting in and out of traffic. One, I might choose not to drive at all because it's too unsafe on the roads and I don't want to uh, get in a car accident and be hurt or have my daughter hurt. So I'm, I've lost my liberty, right? My, my freedom because the, law, the road is so unsafe. Two, I might want, uh, I might drive on the road but get in a car accident and thus my property is injured, right? My car is totaled because there are no laws in place governing how people drive. Or maybe I get in a car accident and I die, therefore my life is lost. So Locke would say, the government has an important role in monitoring how we drive. So that means they institute a licensing program where you have to take a test to get a driver's license. And if you drive without that license, then you can get in trouble. That there are laws governing how we drive, how fast we can drive, when we can turn, um, what um, sort of the rules of the road are. And the um, government has an interest in these things because if people can uh, drive on the road safely. I'm going to go out. I'm going to spend money. I'm going to go to stores. I am going to contribute to my society. And my life, liberty, and property are protected. So when a monarch, though, when the government violates those powers, right, when the government starts taking away our natural rights, then people can rebel, right? So if the government all of a sudden starts purging anyone who disagrees with them, like Stalin did in um, the early days of the Soviet Union, right? Locke would say that the Russians had the right to rebel against that government. Or if the government starts taking away your liberty, right? Saying that you can only go from here to here or it starts taking away your property. So therefore the basis of political power is rest with the people, right? The government only has the power that we give it. And at any point, the people can remove that power by overthrowing the government. There's a great video by um, School of Life about John Locke that I recommend if you wanna know more about his history. Um, I wanna talk a little bit more about him before we talk about Rousseau. So I'm just gonna leave it on this picture of Locke. Um, you notice that his view of natural rights are life, liberty, and property. And that last one, property is really important because 
we are familiar with that language from the Declaration of Independence, which says life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Thomas Jefferson practically plagiarizes Locke, but makes that one change. And that change is significant. Um, we'll talk more about that um, in a little bit um, later today. But life, liberty, and property. Think about the fact that in England, and in fact, in the colonies at this time, the only people who can participate in the political system are men who own property. So if you don't own property, right? And it's not like I own this book. Men who don't own land have no voice in government. And Locke understands that he means that, right? Um, the idea is, well, you can get property eventually. Um, you can work hard enough to acquire property. And this could be really different in the American colonies because so many more men owned property than in England. Remember about 10% of men owned property in England and therefore only about 10% of the population can vote. Whereas about more like 80 plus percent men can um, own property or own property in the colonies. Therefore it's like 80, 90% of the men can vote. Depends a little bit on the colony. So because of that, the understanding of the rights of um, their political rights, colonists have a much more democratic understanding than Englishmen, right? Most Englishmen can't vote, have no say in government. So they are simply represented by parliamentary members. But most American colonial men can vote. So they have a direct say in their local government. And so the fact that they don't have that same direct say in parliament is very frustrating. All right, let's talk about Jean-Jacques Rousseau. So Jean-Jacques Rousseau is going to be the main sort of enlightenment thinker um, that we are gonna talk about from France. Rousseau is such an interesting guy because he introduces this idea of the general will, the will of the people. And his big idea here is that it is the job of the sovereign, aka the leader of the government, to obey the general will of the people. So let's say the will of the sovereign, the king at this point, is to make it so on Wednesdays, everyone in the country has to wear pink, right? That is the will of the king. On Wednesdays, we wear pink. But no one in the country wants to wear pink on Wednesdays. They don't really care what color. So even though it, the sovereign, the king in this case, wants to make a law that on Wednesdays, everyone has to wear pink. If he is a good and legitimate king, he would not make that a law because it is not the general will of the people. Okay, I'm going to come back to this idea. A little bit of background on Rousseau. Rousseau's um, Swiss. He is an author, an artist, a musician, a composer, a philosopher. He lives in Geneva until um, his dad's legal issues force him to move. He has no formal education and is not an aristocrat. So he experiences three different types of government in his life. The Protestant um, 
government in Geneva. Um, the more um, oligarchy in Venice, and then the absolute monarchy in France. He starts publishing books on arts and sciences and raising children in 1749. Now it's interesting, his book on raising children is groundbreaking. Why do I wanna call it a meal? I might be wrong on that. Anyways, his book on raising children is groundbreaking. He's like, you gotta treat children like actual people, not like tiny adults. You know, you gotta love them, you gotta be affectionate. This from a man who has like five children and gives them all up to adoption in a time where most kids who go to an orphanage die of starvation. So like, mm, dude, like you're not great. But he believes that modern society and public education has sort of made humanity weak. We used to think and be independent, but now we just sit and sit and listen to what we're told. So what does it mean to have to be part of this social contract? He writes a book called The Social Contract, essentially asking the question, how do you live in society and be influenced by others and yet still be free? So he argues that as individuals, we yield to the general will, right? There are unspoken expectations in society. We you might think about unspoken expectations in American society. Things like it is the expectation that you will speak English, right? Sure, there are communities that don't, you might not speak English at home, but the general expectation is that if you are out in public, if you're at a store, if you go into the store, you expect that the people working there will be speaking English. Um, another expectation that we have is that when people drive on the road, we expect them to follow the laws, right? We expect them to drive on the right side of the road, not to drive into oncoming traffic. One of the best pieces of advice I've ever heard about driving is that the best quality you can have as a driver is to be predictable, right? Traffic works really well. We don't have accidents. We don't have, um, you know, slowdowns, gridlock, if everyone is driving in a predictable way, if the person in front of me, I expect that they're going to continue driving in a straight line at the speed limit. If they suddenly slow down or turn without using a turn signal, then I have to suddenly slow down, right? So that's an expectation of the general will that if you're out in public, if you're driving, you're going to follow the laws of the road. You're going to not drive drunk. You're going to drive on the right side of the road. You will you know, follow the speed limit. So you're not going to drive 25 on the freeway. So this general will, right? The unspoken expectations of what people in this country want, the general will unifies citizens under a republic, under the government. And he would argue that if you go against the general will, if you go against the majority, your opinion is wrong. Now, this is going to bring up some interesting questions as we talk about the way that the Constitution will seek to protect the rights of the minority, because we can look at plenty of instances in history where the will of the majority is not morally right. But it is the job of the government to execute the general will, right, to execute the will of the people. So Locke emphasizes individual rights. You as a 
person born in this country have a right to life, liberty, and property. Rousseau instead imagines people acting collectively, right? Our laws should um, represent what most people in this country want and the government should execute that desire. Okay, so Locke's from England in the 17th century. Rousseau is from France in the 18th century. Thomas Paine is going to write a book called Common Sense that will be incredibly significant for our road towards revolution. Paine is an Englishman who, he just really hates George III. And he's gonna write about republicanism, right? In this pamphlet called Common Sense, he writes that society in every state is a blessing, but government in its, but government in even its best state is but a necessary evil, right? He hates the English crown. He writes specifically about how much he hates George III. He does not care for us. He is the sullen-tempered pharaoh of England. He is a royal brute. These are literal phrases from common sense. There is, um, he focuses on the constitution of England and hereditary rule, right? He says that the constitution is made up of two ancient tyrannies, the monarch and the aristocracy, right? These are men who were simply born into power. They have not earned it. They are not smarter than us. They just happen to be born into the right family. Therefore, we must break from them, right? He writes, there is something absurd in supposing a continent to be perpetually ruled by an island. And India, by the way, would be like, yes, there is, um, but we'll talk about India and world history. So <clears throat> these ideas aren't original, but they are popular, right? Paine expands this conversation to include the common man. He's writing this in common English. He's not writing it in Latin, the way most um, sort of political discourses are written. He publishes it and it's spread widely in America. George Washington read common sense aloud to his troops. John Adams, though, not so much a fan of Thomas Paine. So, Paine is worried a little bit about, you know, this republicanism, right? What's the difference between natural law and natural right? We should rely more on, you know, your citizen. He is um, not all, not everyone agrees with him. Um, especially those in power are not so sure about like, oh, what about this elevating the common man stuff? All right. So let's go back to history and stop talking about philosophy. If you are the English colonies at this point, which is the smarter move? No, not necessarily the best move, not necessarily the one that you would personally take based off your feelings, but just politically, what economically, what's the smarter move? 
independence or reconciliation and why? Many people would say that like the smarter move would have been reconciliation, right? Great Britain protected us from European rivalries. They gave us access to markets and goods that we would not otherwise have. You know, they protected us in the French Indian War. Their Navy is an asset to us. Wouldn't it have made more sense to just make nice? But that is not what we're gonna choose to do. Instead, we're gonna hit the road towards independence. So there is this big debate in Congress. John Dickinson, you remember the letters from a Pennsylvania farmer, the Olive Branch Petition, is going to be the advocate for peace, for reconciliation. And he's gonna say, look, we need a unanimous vote. Like we all have to agree because he's trying to kick the can down the road. John Adams says, look, we have to go forward. We're never going to get everyone to agree. We're not going to get outside support. So we start moving closer and closer towards independence. Richard Henry Lee in on July 2nd, 1776, is going to make a motion. And he moves that the colonies are independent from Great Britain, dun, 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 right? Like he, it's, this is a motion on the floor. The representatives at the Second Continental Congress have to vote on it. And the Second, Second Continental Congress goes, okay, but what does that mean? Can you expand on that? So Thomas Jefferson of Virginia is chosen to write it. This is the first revolution of the enlightenment and the declaration of independence is an incredibly important document um, in relation to that, right? We will see um, France write their own declaration of the rights of man and citizen. Um, Jefferson writes this in a very lofty style, right? Man is entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But in many ways, this is just a list of complaints. Um, now, I have a little story about the Declaration of Independence um, that really spoke to how nerdy my family is. The one day I was sitting around with my fellow history teachers and we were talking about, I don't know, family gatherings, 4th of July or something. And I made the comment of, yeah, you know, like you do on the 4th of July, you get everyone together, you sit down and you read the Declaration of Independence out loud. And I swear there was like a record stop. There was like a, just a scratch and like, what? Apparently, Apparently, this is not a, a normal thing. Apparently, most families don't sit down and read the Declaration of Independence aloud on the 4th of July. Apparently, most people are more focused on games and hot dogs and watermelon and fireworks. And I apparently come from a long line of nerds. Um, I'm okay with that. I, it's a beautifully written document. 
So I would like to read part of it aloud for you. Um, I would encourage you to read it. You may analyze it in class. This is an incredibly important primary source for US history. It's one I would not be surprised to see on the AP test, either on an SAQ, a multiple choice question, a DBQ. <clears throat> so I'm not gonna read the entire thing, but I would like to read part of it. In the second paragraph after, um, well, I'll just read part of it. Actually, let me see. Okay. <clears throat> the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Can you see how directly Jefferson is lifting these enlightenment ideas, right? It's John Locke's words right there, um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that there are natural rights, that governments only govern with the consent of the govern. And then after this lofty introduction, he writes, a list of complaints. George III has flouted our rights. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasion on the rights of the people. He, yeah. he has um, imposed taxes on us without our consent. He has done X, Y, and Z, and he smells, and he's really mean, and I just hate him. This is such a shift, right? This shift in identity. Rights are not assigned by kings, but assigned by God, right? That by nature, every human is born with these natural rights. Not all men are created equal. Right? They blame George III, they blame the government for flouting our rights. And then of course, there's a question of slavery. It's a question that we'll talk more about a little bit later um, because essentially what the Second Continental Congress is gonna say is like, ooh, great question. Let's talk about that some other time. 
Yeah, they're going to sort of table that question because of a desire for unity. At this point, there is not a strong abolitionist movement in the United States, right? The Quakers um, opposed slavery, but everyone else was kind of meh about it, and the Southern states needed it. The fact of the matter is, this declaration was a hanging offense, right? Um, they should sign it because they will all hang together. If not, they will assuredly hang separately. This is a great video, um, Too Late to Apologize. It's a song that came out, gosh, in the 2010s maybe. Um, and they changed the words to refer to the Declaration of Independence. I also recommend watching this video from Ted Ed on what you might not know about the Declaration of Independence. John Hancock, the man who was presiding president of the Second Continental Congress is going to be the first to sign. And his signature is very large. He says that he wants George to be able to read it without his eyeglasses. This, this is it, this is the turning point. We are now at war with England. Dun, dun, dun. So I would like you to explain how and why colonial attitudes about the government and the individual changed in the years leading up to the American Revolution. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, please let me know. Consider leaving a rating or review. And if you're a teacher who finds this helpful, please consider checking out my Teachers Pay Teacher store. I have PowerPoints and lecture notes and all kinds of resources that can help you teach APUSH in a way that will save you time. I know how precious that time is. Have a great day.